Acts chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 4 through 25 as we continue our series through this book by Luke, this continuation of his gospel work as he shares about all that God continued to do uh, through, by the work of Christ Jesus, through the Spirit, moving through the church and the apostles in particular. Um, as we come to chapter 8 this morning, uh, we skipped the majority of this last week and we did uh, the first four through uh, eight, and then we did uh, the back half of the chapter uh, when we looked at the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, a couple weeks ago. Now we're going to look at the gospel going to the Samaritans. Read along in your Bibles as I uh, read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passages will be on the screen. Hear God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed." Now, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "'Give me this power also.'" So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Finally, verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, we, um, I said a couple weeks ago when we started looking at chapter 8 that this is a movement of the gospel that follows along with uh, essentially the table of contents that Luke has given to us at the beginning of Acts, when he calls the apostles to go and preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts essentially follows that as the rest of its order. Uh, Chapters 3 or 2 through uh, 7 focus on the work of the gospel and the development of the church in Jerusalem. And then what we see beginning in chapter 8 is this movement outward to the surrounding regions, Judea and Samaria, and to those who would not be considered at least insiders to the faith. 
insiders to the faith. We looked a couple weeks ago at the gospel to the outsiders, to the eunuch, a man who is sexually mutilated, who is not necessarily a Jewish man, who receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we look this morning to another group of outsiders, those who would be considered unclean. See, the history of Samaritans and Jews is one pocked with much uh, debate, much strife. Uh, the Samaritans were essentially, they were looked down upon by all Jewish people. In fact, they were told, and it was a well-known saying, that Jews are to have nothing to do with Samaritans. They aren't to touch them. They aren't to hang out with them. They are not to marry them. The Samaritans are half-breeds. So the history of Samaritans is that that ten tribes of, of, of Israel uh, that separated from uh, Judea and uh, two other the tribes, uh, they began, they were taken into slavery. Many of them were taken into slavery. And at that time, those who were left intermarried with the nations around them. So they became half-breeds. They were part Jewish, part having some of the nationalities and cultural identities of the nations around Israel. And things got worse, though. That as Jerusalem and Jews moved back, came back to Jerusalem and came back to the area of Israel from their enslavement, that these people were ostracized by the Jews. That oftentimes they were not allowed into the temple. And in fact, they rejected the temple and began to build their own temple in Samaria. It began to get worse because when one of the emperors and the great rulers of ancient history came in, uh, named Antiochus, came in and destroyed Jerusalem, the Samaritan people, instead of coming to the defense of the Jews in Jerusalem, instead helped Antiochus. And this is only 150 years before Jesus comes to earth. And so essentially, since that 150-year point, these people have essentially been mortal enemies. They are thought of as awful by the Jews. They are thought of as not only just half-breeds, but as traitors to the Israelite nation. But not only that, but they are a people who have a syncretistic religion. That is a religion that mixes um, their ancestral religion of, of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the religions around them. It is believed that Samaritans were uh, worshipers of Zeus, and that was their primary God that they worshipped, even while they had a temple to Yahweh. And whenever we see Jews and Samaritans or Jesus interacting with Samaritans, there is a shock. That we, now listen, we as Georgians, and I'm not really a Georgian, I'm a Floridian, so I get to make fun of everybody. But we in the South, we always, the word is you, you, you make fun of the state to your West. So Georgians make fun of Alabamans, and Alabamians are, make fun of Mississippians, and Mississippians make fun of Louisianans. And we should all make fun of Louisianans. And of Louisianans make fun of those in eastern Texas. And I don't think, at, the, at that point, the south ends and it becomes a completely different culture with the southwest. Well, going then, moving simply and going 20 miles that way and entering Alabama is not like going from Jerusalem to Samaria, even though it was about that same distance. That going from Jerusalem to Samaria was to enter an entirely different ethnic group, essentially. An entirely different culture a people who identified themselves in a very different way. But what we find in the book of Acts is despite the fact that the gospel is now moving out into cultures that would not necessarily be prone to receive the gospel, and in fact the gospels, the people who are told to go out and share the gospel in those places would not be prone to necessarily like the Samaritans, and yet what we find in Acts 8 is that the gospel explodes in this area. That the gospel continues to advance, and it crosses over the dividing line, bringing new joy to those who were once considered outsiders, the unclean, and in fact, those who were despised. How does that happen? Well, it didn't happen because the Jerusalem Christians were suddenly got a great heart for Samaria. That's not what happened. 
Instead, God sent a persecution to the church in Jerusalem. Therefore, they were scattered and forced out of Jerusalem. And as they went, though, they began preaching the gospel. And what we find in Acts chapter 8 is that the primary worker and mover is not human beings. God works and moves through them. But the person who is mentioned over and over and over again, the one who brings the power to change Samaritans, is the Holy Spirit himself. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at the Holy Spirit's role in this wave or this shift of the gospel ministry from Jerusalem into Samaria and the advancements. So I want to look at three aspects of, of why the Holy Spirit was able to move across these cultural and ethnic lines and move and bring the gospel in power. Three points this morning as to why the Holy Spirit and the gospel advances. The first is this, is Holy Spirit cannot be thwarted. It can't be thwarted. This is seen in verses 9 through 13, where we are introduced to this man named Simon who practiced magic. It says there, and it says the people of Samaria were amazed by him. Now, what we see here is this group of scattered Christians, as they move into Samaria, they were entering what is a satanic stronghold. That the most powerful and most prominent person of that day in Samaria was this man, Simon, a magician. Now, this is not a magician the same way that you and I think of a magician, right? He's not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. He's not doing card tricks. This is not some cute guy who shows up at your six-year-old's birthday party. This is a sorcerer. This is a, one who is utilizing the knowledge that they have that they have reached through probably satanic means, and they are using it to lord it over and to control this particular region and to bring attention to themselves. Oddly enough, what it's called here is he's called Simon the Magus, which is the same word for magi, which would totally, if we think of the magi, you think of the three magi going to Jesus's, to see maybe Jesus, but that is not what those guys were. They were not simply magicians. They were actually Eastern sorcerers who God had redeemed and in turn to people who bowed the knee to a new king. That's who the three magi are. This is not a, wouldn't it be interesting if the Christmas play had indeed not been just three magic men, but we saw them as three sorcerers. But that's who was coming to bow the knee. This was not David Copperfield or David Blaine showing up to do some nice work or nice tricks. This was somebody who was involved in demonic sorts of activities. So he's a magician. He's a man who uses his knowledge and uses it for cultic sorcery. The magic men of those days would invoke the names of deities and perform sort of cultic rituals, and they would do so, and they would say that if you come and give me money, I will perform these rituals and call out to these deities, and when I do that, your, your aunt will be healed, or your enemies will be destroyed, or there will be rain for your crops, or your political enemies, they will be voted out of office. I, or they, I can even tell you the future. That was the promises. They would promise to be able to heal people from demon possession and from their physical brokenness. And what we see is that Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magus, that his power in the city was enormous. What did they call him? They call him the man who was great with the great power of God. In other words, they regard him, understand this, this is an age in which people see, they don't see it as one great universal God. They have many gods. So they see Simon as either being a representative of God or withholding the power of God or maybe even being an incarnate God himself. And it says that they gave heed to him from the least to the greatest. They looked to Simon, oddly enough, not as some weirdo. Not as some weirdo who lives out in a weird shack and kind of has a moon and you know, flips cards and tells you your horoscope for the day. 
or, or, or like kind of sits there with a ball and like makes weird sounds. That's not how they saw this person as some fringe of society. This is a person that is looked up to by the entire culture there with the Samaritans. This is a city under the influence of the demonic, a city under the influence of a sorcerer. Now, we might think as good Western people that this is, you know, this, this doesn't happen today. Absolutely not. It happens, one, it happens in the third world all the time. I was in Haiti when I was my junior year in college, and I remember we had to skip, we were going out to a particular area where this missions work, and we had to, to, to go off the main road, which the main road was, I mean, you would have preferred a dirt road, but the main road, you, you went off into a dirt road and had to go around because there was this particular city that we had to go around because a witch doctor who ruled over that city had created a blockade so that missionaries could not get through that middle of that town. He ruled over the city. In the same way, what we see when we look back at, um, at 20th century history, the great men who led in the early part of the 20th century in particular, you think of Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. Well, not so much Stalin, but Mussolini and Hitler were men that they believed they could help people spellbound by the ability to get up and speak. And when people would look at them and they treated them as gods, to think that we would be above this is foolishness. History does not show that any human being in any culture is necessarily above this. We do the same thing. We, the idol worship of politicians, the idol worship of celebrities, people who are famous simply for being famous, and we, we think today maybe it's not somebody who lives in your town. There's nobody in Carrollton that we're necessarily worshiping. But we have technolo- some of our technological advances that there are people that we follow, that we have fallen under the spell of, who have way too much weight and have authority in our life. For some of you, you're watching things that you should not watch. For example, one of the most um, famous and popular television shows of the last three, four, five years has been a show called The Game of Thrones. Now, what's in Game of Thrones? It's an extremely interesting show, but what's prominent and prevalent in that show? Sorcery. Witchcraft. And people, even Christians, have spent the better part of the last three or four years obsessed with this show. To think that we're above it? We're not above it. We're not, quite, we're not above it at all. But what we see is the arrival of Christians, in particular with Philip and the Christians' missionaries who are moving into Samaria. They are proclaiming the gospel. And what happens here is there is a clash now between two spiritual forces. It is a brief look, if we look at this text, you'll see that they are juxtaposed, Philip and Simon. Philip came and proclaimed what? Christ. He pointed away from himself. Simon comes and says what? He refers to himself as how great he is. He's bringing all kind of power and all kind of attention to himself. Philip was, how did he win attention? Through the proclamation of the word. Simon won attention through what? Not the word factor, the wow factor. Philip's power is given by Christ. Simon's power comes from Satan and demonic forces. Philip's power is used to deliver and heal. Simon's power is used to enslave and to control. You know, it's interesting. Philip comes and he's healing and casting out demons. That would have been one of the specific things that Simon would have promised that he could do. So if Simon is so prominent at this, if he's so good at healing people of their demon possession, you would think there's either two problems. One, he can't actually do it. Or two, he's charging such exorbitant prices to do so that he is manipulating the people. And yet Philip comes with the free grace of the gospel, and we see people are healed, not only physically, but spiritually. But far more than being a face-off between Philip and Simon, this passage is a face-off between the Satan and the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we necessarily talk about in Western cultures, but there are, there is a spiritual realm 
in which there is a battle going on. And we need to come to a place where both Jesus and the apostles and the prophets all recognize that the battle for this world is ultimately fought at a spiritual level. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, that we are to put on the whole armor of God that you may do what? Stand against the schemes of politicians? Stand against the schemes of your HOA? Stand against the schemes of some sorority? I, I live in a terrible HOA. That's, that's so, sorry, that's on my mind. Uh, stand against the schemes of, of, of some sort of cultural group at your school? No, so to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual war going on, and often, in fact, this warfare, this spiritual warfare, is to fight for physical territorial space. I lived in a, um, in a city called Sarajevo, Bosnia, for a year. It is a place that for about the better part of 500 and 600 years was considered to be the meeting point of East and West. And it was, it was they, they lauded the fact that the downtown, so right at the core of Sarajevo, from one spot you can stand and you can see a Jewish synagogue, a Roman Catholic cathedral, an Eastern Orthodox church, and a mosque. And they were the place, they had the 84 Olympics there because they were the bastion of pluralism. The bastion of the place where all these people could come together and meet and love each other, and that this was peace and love in Bosnia. And then they slaughtered each other for four years. By the time that I got there in, in the early part of the uh, middle part of the 2000s, 2004, 2005, when I flew into that city, and me and the rest of my team, we felt a spiritual oppression in that entire place. It started around sunrise when you would hear the blast of the call to prayer from the Muslim mosques. There was a spiritual warfare going on in that place. There was a spiritual depression. It was felt by all the people that lived there, even if they could not describe it. And when I flew out of that place after a year, I felt a weight come off my soul. Now listen, I have nothing objective, scientific to prove it. But simply the sense that there are places where you go where you'll feel a particular sense of spiritual warfare going on. It's true. And in re reality, that this is what's going on. The devil wants your places. He wants your home. He wants your children. He wants your place of work. He wants your campus. He wants your gym. And he wants your church. And to think that he is not laboring with all the forces of evil to do so is foolishness. It's foolishness. Being a spiritual leader, and this is interesting, being a spiritual leader in this world means you respond to the earthly, physical, invisible challenges that are in front of you, but you ultimately do it with a view of the spiritual warfare that is going on, not the physical or the financial or the emotional or the relational. For example, good husbands, right? One of the things that we're supposed to be as Christians is supposed to be spiritual leaders in the household. And for some reason, we think that means we make decisions, Here's the, here's the best line. It does mean you make decisions. But it is far more that. The best line of spiritual leadership goes like this. When faced with a crisis, hey, let's pray about that. Because it is the recognition that what we are engaging in on a day-in and day-out basis in your parenting and your financial life and your relational life and your work life is it is a spiritual warfare, not a physical one. Not a one that is necessarily visible. And so we are in a spiritual battle. 
But the beautiful truth of this passage, and it happens swiftly. It happens swiftly in the way Luke is running through this narrative. But the truth of this passage is that God, by the power of his spirit, is invading a place in which satanic forces have had ownership and rights. And he's invading a place and he's taking it over. And it happens like that. What happens? Does Simon get put, even put up much of a resistance? Does Satan win? No, Satan loses and Simon loses. Philip wins and Jesus wins. You know, it's interesting. This has been, if you, you could follow the stream throughout um, the Bible. You know, there's this wonderful place, uh, so many of you are familiar with from your felt board days in Sunday school, of looking at the various plagues. You were all taught the plagues in Sunday school. And you look at like the boils and the frogs and the gnats, and you're go, everyone's going, oh, it's so gross. There's something far more going on in Exodus than simply some gross plagues. Each of those plagues corresponded with a different Egyptian god. The Nile was something that was worshipped. Frogs was one of the images of one of the gods that they served. What was God doing? He's confronting the forces of darkness, the idolatry of those places, and he's saying, I'm going to best you. He's always been doing it. He did it here, and he's still doing it today. You see, Jesus always wins. You've seen those stupid bumper stickers that say love wins? Listen, they're not, maybe they're not stupid, they're just incomplete. Because it should say Jesus' love wins. Because Jesus' love wins does not mean that it's simply like some vapid understanding of love where you just, it's permissive love. Love wins, everybody just gets to do what they want. No, love wins means that Jesus invades your life and sets you free from the addictions in your life and doesn't go there, there, there. It's okay to be an addict. No, Jesus invades your life because love of Jesus wins, because the love of Jesus brings mercy and justice into this world. So there's a showdown between the spiritual forces and Jesus and his Holy Spirit wins. He wins against sickness. We see it in his life. He wins against sickness, against the wind and the waves. He wins against the demons. He wins against the death, and he wins against sin. And the truth of this is, is the beautiful truth of this to apply it for us is that when God invades, when his Holy Spirit invades a new place, a new city, a new family, that he brings with him liberty for those who have been enslaved. The gospel advances because the Spirit's power moves into people's hearts and lives into various parts of the culture and sets the captive free. What does is, what is Philip come to preach? He comes, it says specifically in verse 12, that he came to preach who or what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. In other words, what he's doing is he is invading the space where there has been satanic oppression and rule, and he is coming and saying, I'm setting you free by bringing you under a new king, a better king, a good king, where God will rule and reign. And he proclaims the name of Jesus as the new authority in their lives. He says, when Jesus brings to, comes to bring you under his rule, it's not to bring you under enslavement, but to bring you into liberty, where the things that you have been addicted to, the sins that you has, have, have held you captive that you have not been able to set free from, when the Spirit invades those places and he invades people's lives, he sets them free. He sets them free. Leon Morris, who is a famous commentator on Acts, tells a, what has now become a fairly well-known story, amongst, at least amongst preachers, tells the story of a drunkard who was brought to faith in Christ Jesus. And some of his friends were um, making fun of him. 
And they were mocking him and mocking his newfound faith. And they were saying, you don't really believe in the Bible and all those miracle stuff. And they, in particular, as good drunkards, they were like, now you don't really believe that Jesus can turn water into wine, do you? And he says, here's what he, the man said. Well, I don't know about all that, but I know one thing, that he has turned wine into furniture. He has changed my life. So in the reality, listen, I'm not making any vapid promises. If you're an addict today, you're withheld under the, 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 the rule of pornography, of some sort of addiction, of some sort of abusive relationship. I'm not saying that you'll get out of it today, that you'll be set free from it today. But the power of it is broken. And when the Spirit of God invades your life, you can say, because here's the truth, I've met with so many men, Christian men, who come into my office and they think, and they've looked at pornography for the 3,000th time and they've said, I cannot beat this. I can't beat this. And the truth of the gospel is when the Holy Spirit invades your life, the truth is no longer, I can't beat this. The truth is that the Spirit of God lives inside of you and he will defeat this. The power is there. It is not upon your own strength. It is the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit moving through it to set you free. So the gospel advances because Holy Spirit power is greater than satanic power, than greater than demonic power. Listen, that may be awkward for you to recognize, but perhaps you might consider where you need to be set free. Where is the devil's attack in your household? What are the lies that you're believing? And plead for the Holy Spirit's to invade. So the gospel advances because the Holy Spirit brings power and he defeats all the demonic forces, the satanic forces with his own power and sets free the captives, those enslaved by evil. But the gospel also advances by the, by the Holy Spirit's blowing. And he advances because his blowing cannot be contained. This is the second thing I want us to look at. This Holy Spirit's blowing cannot be contained. Things seem to be going really great in Samaria. Philip comes and some of the other Jewish Christians come to Samaria and they preach the gospel and things are going well and people are being baptized and they're growing as believers, but then there's two complications that come up. And we'll look at them in order. The first complication is this, is that the Samaritan believers don't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14 through 17 with me. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, we're going to, if, if what I normally do is preaching, we're going to step aside from preaching and we're going to have to shift over to some teaching for a second. Because we're going to ask this question why haven't they received the Holy Spirit? Because the normal thing that we've seen in Acts and we've seen in other places of Scripture is that when you are saved, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And by baptism of the Holy Spirit means is this is the Holy Spirit comes and resides in your life and he does not leave. He is the new abiding force in your life. But what appears here is that these people believe in Jesus. They are saved. They are going to heaven. And yet they haven't received the Holy Spirit. They have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now there is some confusion amongst Christians as to what is going on with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For example, what is different between the New Testament and the Old Testament? Some people think that new birth and regeneration is something that only happened in the New Testament. New birth, you know when Jesus meets with Nicodemus and he says, you need to be born again. The theological word is regenerated. Your heart needs to be made new. And some people think that's a new concept to the New Testament. It's not. 
That has always been the case. All followers of God, even in the Old Testament, if they were to follow God, the Spirit of God had to do a renewing, regenerating new birth within them. But what is new in the New Testament and what comes in the New Covenant is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit who now comes upon you in power is permanently resides in your life. That is what is new. And so these people who have believed in Jesus haven't received the Spirit. Why? What's going on here? Well, the most likely reason for the delay was to help to heal the divide between Jews and Samaritans. That's the most likely reason as to why. But I'm going to get to that in a roundabout way. because, And before I get there, I have to deal with what is a consistent controversy amongst various Christians. Because often what certain groups of Christians have done is look at this text and they have said is this. That there are two tiers to being a Christian. There are two salvation experiences that you must have. That the first is this. That you must believe in Jesus. And now you're in. That's great. You've got hell insurance. You're not going to hell. You're saved. That's good. That's great. It's better than not having that. But what they would say is what you need, like these Samaritans had, is you need the laying on of hands, and you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as if that is not normative to the Christian experience. In other words, here are the two positions. The, 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 the evangelical orthodox position that is normally heard is this, is that when you trust and believe in Jesus, that not only are you made new inside, but the Spirit of God comes to dwell within you. But then there is another group within Christianity that says that you believe in Jesus, but then what we need to look forward to is a second blessing, a second salvation of sorts, in which you are set free from your sin by the power and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The most prominent group that teaches this is what you would know as, as Pentecostals. It's what they have as a two-tiered theology or two-tiered means of salvation. In other words, that you would need to believe in Jesus, but at another time you need to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that baptism of the Holy Spirit is displayed by speaking in tongues and prophecy. And therefore, what I just said to you about the Spirit invading and setting you free from addiction, if you were to go to a Pentecostal church and you say, I'm addicted, you know what they would say you need? you got to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You haven't had it yet. And you got to speak in tongues as a means of showing that you actually have the power to defeat sin. But that's two different, very different views of where you are as a Christian. Do you actually see yourself as somebody who has the Spirit of God residing in you in power to the point where you can actually defeat sin by his power and the addictions in your life? Or do you see it as, I need, I'm waiting on this second experience? Those are two different doctrinal teachings. Now, what we see here is that we, what I would say, and I think what most evangelicals would say, is the Pentecostals have gotten this wrong. God bless them. They're with us. They love Jesus. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. But they've gotten this wrong because what they have done is they have taken what is a, uh, an exception to the norm, and they have made that the norm and that the principle. In other words, I'm going to teach you a little bit how to, how to read the Bible and how to do theology. So many of us are theologically immature, in which you don't know how to read two different texts that appear not to necessarily jive with each other very well, and you're constantly confused. But here's a theological or interpretive principle, which is this, is that you have, must make, be able to make a difference between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. A prescriptive is when the Bible says, you must not murder. That's a prescribed thing. That's clear. A description is... Here's what they did, and we try to glean principles from the descriptions. For, let me give you this example of, of different ways in which this causes debate in the church. For example, in the New Testament, there are, we have debates as to whether you should baptize babies or not. Anywhere in the New Testament does it give you a prescription that says, you must baptize the children of believers. No. 
At the same time, anywhere in the New Testament does it tell you, you must not baptize babies. No. Therefore, as trying to understand what we must do, what we must look at is look at the various descriptions and go, what is the principles? Is there a norm or is there a pattern by which we must live out our life? And you look for the patterns there. In other words, what I would say here in regards to this issue is what Pentecostals have done is they've taken the exception and made that the rule instead of looking at the normal pattern of the way things have gone about. Those are two different ways of doing theology. Now, if you haven't stuck with me, wake back up. We're getting back to the main points. Here is the norm. Here's the norm that we see in Acts. And there's a norm for exceptions. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, we find that the Spirit comes in power in such a way that people speak in tongues and prophesy, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes at a, at a weird time. All those places, the Acts 2 is Pentecost, Acts 8 is when the gospel goes to the Samaritans, Acts 10 is when the gospel goes to the Gentiles for the first time, and Acts 19 is when those who are considered the disciples of John the Baptist come to know Jesus. In other words, here's what the pattern is, is that then when the gospel penetrates a new region, or a place in which there needs to be visible manifestations immediately that these people are saved, that's where we see things like prophecy in tongues. That's where we see things like baptism have happening after they've already come to believe in Jesus. Now, where does that, that brings us back to this question. Why is there a delay for the Samaritans? And the answer is this. There's a delay for the Samaritans so that Peter and John can get down there to authorize and authenticate and say, we have seen it. And they go back to Jerusalem to a people who hate Samaritans, to a people who would say, listen, we don't believe that we actually are going to be unified to Samaritans, really, right? They don't really have the same Holy Spirit living inside them like we do, right? And Peter and John go down to Samaria and they say, oh, yes, they do. We saw it. We witnessed it. And the means by this, and we actually come to the point to the, as it connects to the whole rest of the sermon. I'm sorry for this. But it's this. is that you cannot put the Holy Spirit in a box. That he moves beyond your expectations. The expectations of early Jewish Christians probably was like, this is going to be for us. We're just kind of the more knowledgeable Jewish Christians. We just, you know, our rest, this is for us and our Israelite friends. But no. No, this is to go out to all peoples. The Holy Spirit cannot be contained. He cannot be put in a box and said, you can only go to the line of Jerusalem. You can only go to this place and to this household and this area of the country. And the Holy Spirit will say, yeah, right. I will go where I want. I will blow where I want. I will save the people that I want. The Holy Spirit will bust our categories for who should be in church and who should not be in church, who is actually saved and who is not saved. The story a woman of prominence in the last couple of years is a woman named Rosaria Butterfields. She was a, uh, a teacher at Syracuse University who was living in a, a gay and lesbian lifestyle. In fact, she was the director or the head of what they call queer studies at Syracuse University. She hated Christians. She hated all people that she considered to be conservatives. She was in a wonderful, as she thought at the time, monogamous relationship. And she and her spouse at that time were they would constantly debate. They hated Christians. But what, what did God do? The person, she, she wrote a book in the last couple of years about her conversion to Christianity, and the title of it was what? The Most Unlikely Convert. That one who hated Christians, who was antagonistic to the gospel, comes to know Jesus. March 24th of this year, the New York Times had a, had a profile about a man named Bashir Muhammad 
who was a jihadist terrorist who came to know Jesus. And he's not a jihadist terrorist who had moved to the West and then came to know Jesus. He's a jihadist terrorist who still lives in Turkey and is now proclaiming the gospel in that place. Norma McCorvey, some of you know the name Norma McCorvey. She was Roe, Jane Roe from Roe versus Wade. She was known for years and years to be, years to be obviously a proponent of, of abort, pro-abortion agenda. And years after that, she ran to a man named Flip Benham who shared the gospel with her outside of the abortion clinic where she worked, and she became a believer. The most unusual people. Now, those actually interesting enough in the church world because of the way we do testimonies, those are, you know, we're like, oh, of course. Well, for some of you, here's the people that maybe you wouldn't think we're gonna get, are going to get saved. The Holy Spirit might work in. The Holy Spirit saves the so- silent, sullen kid in the youth group who seems disinterested. The Holy Spirit blows and saves your rich neighbor who you think probably doesn't feel his or her need for Jesus. The Holy Spirit blows and saves the millennial whose V-neck in their T-shirt drives you crazy. The Holy Spirit blows and saves the bombastic loudmouth in your office. The Holy Spirit blows and saves the angry, litigious, overly religious man down the road from you right now. I think we might be quite surprised who is in heaven and who is not. Because the Holy Spirit blows beyond our expectations and he blasts blasts through the boxes that we put him in, either theologically or our expectations of him. You know what? Democrats and Republicans are going to be shocked to find out that people of other parties are in heaven with them. (laughs) Poor people will be amazed that rich people will be in heaven. And the prude who wears puffy blouses will be shocked that the prostitute will sing next to her in heaven. See, the truth is this, is has, let me, and this is for, the, for you Christians, has your expectation of how you think the Holy Spirit is or will work, is it, is it hamstringing your faith? Is it hamstringing your hope for the people that you know? And is it hamstringing you missionally? To think that, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not, you know, those people don't need Jesus. Their life is good. You see, the people who probably most need Jesus in this town are the people who are part of the country club. See, do you have a, a view of what the Holy Spirit could do? See, when you put them in a box, you limit what the Holy Spirit does and where he can blow. But no, the Holy Spirit goes where he wants. Third point. Third point is to why the whole gospel advances in Samaria is because the Holy Spirit grace cannot be bought. Now, when Simon says in verse 18, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands, he offered them money. What's Simon do? Here's a man, he'd been baptized. He'd believe in Jesus. But he sees, he's like, wait a second. That is really cool stuff. Look at this. These guys, I promised healing. These guys can actually deliver it. These guys can change people's lives by the preaching of this gospel. These people, this Holy Spirit is falling on people through the laying out of their, hand, of their hands on these people. As, that would be a really good part of my act. I could go on the road with that bad boy. And he believes that the power of God can be purchased. N.T. Wright, who is a well-known commentator, says this. The general point of this whole, this whole section is to show that the spirit cannot be brought under human control. And yet that's what Simon tries to do. But here's the truth. The grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is not for sale. It is not for sale. If salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, was not a gift of grace, and instead was something that you could dispense, guess what would happen? The gospel would only dispense, be dispensed to the people that you like. So praise Jesus that we're not the ones who dispense the Holy Spirit. 
Guess what? If you was the, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you was up to you, you could, you could take up the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and set it aside by your own will, guess what? You would never take him up because he would shake your life too much. You, you might try him for 30 days, risk-free, but eventually you'd send him back and say, I want nothing to do with this. Here's how Christians, here's how we try to buy the Holy Spirit. We think that if we can just pay the right worship band, then the Holy Spirit will fall in this place. Have I hit close to home enough? Seriously, if we just go to the right conference where they have the right mixer, then the Holy Spirit, I'll feel the Holy Spirit's power in my life. If only we'll read the right books, I can buy the Holy Spirit's power in my life. We think the Holy Spirit comes by something special, something that you can do. But that's not how it happens. Instead, what is the nature of the Spirit's work? It's a nature of grace. And what does Peter say? It's interesting. Even in his, his, his warning to Simon, there is grace. He's, he answers Simon, he says this, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. By the way, literally in the translation, you know what that means, may your money perish with you? That means may you and your money go to hell. But that's the wrath. The grace is what? You thought you could buy what? The gift. The gift of God. You see, the Holy Spirit's power is a gift, not something that you earn, not something that can be bought. It is something that is given to you by the sheer grace of God. So as it says in Ephesians 2, no one, no one can boast. For by grace, not of yourselves, you're saved. It is a gift of God. You cannot buy grace. Here's the truth as we head to the table. But grace must be bought, right? You can't buy it. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's power and his baptism was purchased for you on the cross. So it's not for sale because it's already been bought. It's been bought by the blood of the Lamb, who as we're going to celebrate here in just a moment, his body was broken and his blood was shed to make it yours. It's not for sale. Here's the application then. You plead for it. There's a blank at the end of this story. What does Simon do? He pleads to Peter to pray on his behalf that he might be saved. And Peter calls him to repentance. That's a beautiful thing. The answer is not, hey, go do this conference, get this kind of worship, get this kind of experience, and you'll experience the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, the answer is this. It's to fall on your knees in repentance and plead for the Holy Spirit to fall on you in power and in grace, and in mercy. Will you pray with me, and we'll go to the table. Those who are serving the Lord's Supper would come forward at this time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, your grace is not dispensed by our whims. It is not received by us by our whims. But Lord, as you did in Samaria, that your Holy Spirit invades So, Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would invade us. I pray that there would be people in this room today, this morning, who would pray that fearful prayer, would say, God, I have no money to bring. I have nothing, no wealth, no riches, nothing to give to win your grace. 
I simply plead for your mercy. And that, Lord, I pray that you would be merciful in that moment, that you would invade. So gracious Heavenly Father, Spirit, fall on us. And Lord, I, that's apropos. I pray, Lord, your Spirit would fall upon this bread and this cup. That it would be the means of your Spirit and grace coming upon us. Lord, we thank you that you say, that you promise that wherever well, we break bread and we do this in remembrance of you, that you are there with us that your grace is dispensed to us. And so, Lord, I thank you that we can come and eat at your table, as it says in Isaiah. We can come and eat and come and drink and come and partake of mercy without money. We can come and buy because you have purchased it all. So, gracious Heavenly Father, we set aside this bread and this cup to do your wondrous work, to remind us of the cross, to remind us of the graciousness that is given to us as a free gift. It's in Jesus' name, the one who paid the price for this gift, we pray. Amen.